It is good to be back with you all. As we were sitting there singing, I got very emotional, um, realizing how much I um, missed worshiping with you over the last three Sundays. Um, I really love my church family. So uh, this morning is going to be um, a little different than usual. I'm, uh, I'm doing a full sermon on the Lord's Supper, but it's going to be a lot of different things. I'm going to be quoting different people. I'm going to be looking at history. It's going to be a little bit of a history lesson. So it won't be the typical sermon that I would preach where I would just take a portion of scripture and, and just exposit that passage. So I want uh, to give you that heads up. But I want to preach this because I really want us to um, come to the Lord's Supper with a real understanding of what it is we're doing. So let me pray for us and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the precious gift it is to be able to gather with your people. And I truly pray that we would never take this for granted. And as we look to your word now, we ask that by your spirit, you would illumine our minds and stir our hearts to marvel at the wonder and the gift that we have in Christ and in the elements that he has given us in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. So bless us now, speak to us, exalt Jesus here in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These words that Beverly just read for us um, by Charles Spurgeon are absolutely beautiful. And through these words, we're given insight into Spurgeon's understanding of the Eucharist, that is the table of Thanksgiving or the Lord's Supper. Spurgeon really believed that the Lord's Supper was more than just a mere act of remembrance. He really believed that when the saints partook of the bread and cup in faith and by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were in some sense communing and feeding upon the risen Christ spiritually. That it was through the Lord's Supper that the people of God were nourished spiritually as they ate the bread and drank the cup in faith. I've had the joy over the last uh, week to read Dr. Haken's new book titled Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands, Recovering Sacrament in the Baptist Tradition, and I highly recommend it. But one of the things that has stood out to me as I've read this book was seeing how deeply committed our Baptist forebearers were in the 17th and 18th century to the practice of the Eucharist and how central it was to their worship and that they really did believe that in the Lord's Supper, they were truly feeding upon Christ spiritually. Growing up in a Baptist church, I can testify that was not my experience. Yes, we celebrated the Lord's Supper once a month, but, but it was never seen as a central part of our worship toward God. And, and not only this, it was always presented as a mere act of remembrance, nothing more. The fact is, I thought altar calls were more important than the Lord's Supper because altar calls were far more frequent. The Lord's Supper really didn't mean all that much to me. The preaching of the word was everything. But I would have gotten on just fine if we had never had the Lord's Supper again. But I don't think that way anymore. And I think as Baptists, we have devalued and lost sight of one of, if not the greatest gift that God has given to us 
so that we might commune with him. In fact, the more I have read and studied in regards to the ordinances or the sacraments, whatever word you want to use, I've become convinced that the Eucharist is just as essential to the worship of God as the preaching of God's word is. God uses the preaching of his word to sanctify his people, but he also uses the supper to sanctify his people. See, here's the fact of the matter. As evangelicals, we have lost sight of our history. We have not learned from our forebears in the faith. And this morning, I'm not going to explain what happened and why it happened. That would require a full historical lesson. But, but here's thing, one thing I want, us to, I want to allude to. For many reasons, within Baptist circles, the altar call replaced the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. So that when a preacher would preach the gospel and call people to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, they would call them forward as a way of declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. Come to the altar, declare your faith. Despite the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that the way in which a sinner is called to declare their faith in Christ is through the waters of baptism. Further, often when a preacher would call Christians to recommit themselves to the Lord, he would often do an altar call. But historically speaking, Christians always understood that the place in which we would renew our commitment to the Lord and to one another was at his table by partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that altar calls are always evil or anything like that, and, and, and our, many, many people who have practiced them had good intentions. They wanted people to come to Jesus. But biblically speaking, it is baptism and the Lord's Supper by which we declare our allegiance to Jesus Christ and recommit ourselves to the Lord. This is why Benjamin Keach one of the great Baptist thinkers in the 1600s, in reference to the Lord's Supper, called it a soul-reviving cordial. A soul-reviving cordial. I can testify that was not my experience growing up. But as I've gone deeper into the scriptures and studying church history, the Lord's Supper has truly become that to my soul. A soul-reviving cordial. The great female Baptist theologian Anne Dutton, who wrote in the 17th century, spoke of the Lord's Supper as the means of grace that brought the Christian closest to heaven. She said this, this ordinance admits us into the nearest approach to Christ's glorious self that we can make in an ordinance way on the earth, on this side, the presence of his glory in heaven. Even Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers who was devoted to the preaching of God's word, said this on one occasion to his church family. I thank God that coming to this table every Sabbath day, as some of us do and have done for years, we have yet, for the most part, enjoyed the nearest communion with Christ here that we have ever known. Isn't that an incredible statement? When that man was known for his preaching and the impact that his preaching had on thousands of people. So what happened? Our Baptist history demonstrates that we believed the Lord's Supper was more than just an ear, mere act of remembrance. 
We, we shared the reformed historical position that when we partake of the bread and cup, though neither the bread and wine literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus, that's the Roman Catholic teaching, but that in some mysteriously real sense, we were feeding spiritually upon the body and blood of Christ, truly communing with Christ at his table. What happened? Well, there's a lot of factors. But slowly by the end of the 18th and 19th centuries, Baptists embraced the memorialist view of the supper. That is, it was simply an act of remembrance. John Sutcliffe, a a faithful Baptist minister, actually had a letter in which he referred to both baptism and the Lord's Supper as, listen to this, memorials of the absent Savior. Now, Sutcliffe wasn't trying to argue that the Lord's Supper was insignificant in the Christian's life. He believed that the Christian ought never to treat the ordinances of Christ with indifference. But, but and, and I think Dr. Haken is right, that though Sutcliffe sought to guard against indifference about the supper, his perspective on the nature of the table would in time help to foster such an attitude which I think was my experience growing up as a child in the Baptist church. Think about it like this. Imagine if we spoke of the preaching of God's word in a similar fashion. Imagine if I started to say that the preaching of God's word is just a means to remember what God has done for us and what he has commanded and nothing more. How might our heart attitudes change over time to the preaching of God's word? Now, in preaching, I am, in fact, calling us to remember what God has done and what he has said. But we believe that when God's word is preached, there is something happening than just mere remembrance. We believe that through the preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit is at work communicating spiritual truths to our souls, sanctifying us through the preaching of the word and saving us. That there is something spiritual actually taking place as the word of God is preached and as we listen with hearts of faith. You see, God has chosen this ordinary means, preaching, this this ordinary means of grace to nourish us spiritually by feeding us with the words of eternal life. Would this also not be true with the Lord's Supper? That on the one hand, we hear the word, and then when we come to the table, we see the word. You see, if I didn't believe this, I wouldn't be a preacher. If I, if I believed that preaching was simply just reminding you of truth, I wouldn't be a preacher. I could make way more money as a motivational speaker. No, no. I preach because I believe that somehow God uses this preaching to actually help people commune with Jesus. Now, why am I sharing all of this with you? Well, here's why. I have a deep longing and desire to see our understanding of the elements of worship deepen so that our worship of God would be pure and honoring to him, but also that our souls would be more deeply nourished and fed when we gather. 
I've said this before. If you think the only thing that matters in our worship is the preaching of God's word, you don't understand what the Bible says about worship. Every element that we participate in here matters, and that's why you should be here on time, and that's why you ought not leave until the end. See, I believe a part of the way in which this deepening will happen, this deeper understanding of the elements that God has given us for worship, is when we restore the significance of the Lord's Supper in our midst. And that the more we understand what it is we're doing when we partake of the bread and cup, the more meaningful this moment will be in our worship of God. I want us to be able to say, like Andrew Fuller in his journal entry on October 31st, 1784, I preached this afternoon on the dimensions of the love of Christ. Great delight at the Lord's Supper. Oh, to know more of and live upon Christ. He must be our daily bread. Sweet pleasure tonight. That was my intro. Now I got another 45 minutes. (laughs) So here's all that I'm going to do in the remaining part of this message. I want to ask why. Why do we as followers of Jesus partake of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? And I have six reasons for why we partake. Several of these reasons come directly out of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which are rooted in the scriptures, which I'm going to show you. So six reasons for why we partake of the Eucharist. The first is pretty obvious. It's commanded. It's commanded by God. Jesus, on the night of Passover, instituted the Lord's Supper and said, Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. See, here's something for you to be aware of. Almost everything we do in our Sunday morning worship is because we've been commanded to, or it's alluded to in the scriptures. Why do we have someone read a large portion of scripture every Sunday? Because the scriptures tell us to do so. Why do we sing to one another? Because the scriptures tell us to do so. Why do we confess our sins? Because because the scriptures tell us to do so. Why is there the preaching of the word? Because the scriptures tell us to do so. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Because the scriptures tell us to do so. Do this in remembrance of of me. And as we'll see, the reason we're commanded to do these things is because these things are precisely what God has instituted for our spiritual sanctification. Which leads to the second reason. The second reason why we take of the Lord's Supper is because God works through means. God works through means. What do I mean by that? We believe that God has ordained the means by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies and grows his people. And the Eucharist is one of the primary means by which God, through the Spirit, sanctifies his people. I mean, have you ever asked why it's so important for Christians who have been saved by Jesus and have the indwelling Holy Spirit to still gather with God's people, to fellowship, pray, confess their sins, hear scripture, sing to one another, sing to one another, take the Lord's table? Why, why do we need to do these things if we already have the Holy Spirit, if we already have a relationship with God? There have been different Christian movements who have sometimes thought this way, right? The, the me, myself, and God mentality. 
The Quakers were in some way a great example of this. They completely dispensed the Lord's Supper and baptism because they believed they only needed the Holy Spirit. And there are professing Christians today who think along these categories. I don't need to go to church and hear the word of God and take of the Lord's Supper to have a relationship with God. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. But there's a great error in that thinking. Because it doesn't understand or acknowledge the means by which the Holy Spirit shapes and transforms us. As Puritan Richard Greenham said, we draw near to God by means. Richard Greenham spoke of the necessity of spiritual disciplines as a means by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies his people. But what's shocking is that for Greenham, the three most important spiritual disciplines was that of prayer, hearing the word, and drawing near to Christ by the sacraments. When was the last time you read a modern evangelical book on spiritual disciplines that spoke of the Lord's Supper as being one of the most important godly practices in your life in order for you to grow and be sanctified. See, the person who says, I don't need these elements like the Lord's Supper to grow because I have the Holy Spirit is like a small maple tree which was convinced it didn't need water or the sun because God, his creator, would cause him to grow. God will cause the maple tree to grow, but the means by which he does so is through water and the sun. In the same way, the Holy Spirit will sanctify and grow the people of God, but he will do it by the means that God has ordained for us to grow. Prayer, confession, fasting, fellowship, service, singing to one another, hearing the scriptures, preaching, the Lord's Supper. See, it's not a coincidence that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.19 exhorts us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then immediately brings up singing to one another. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, one of the means by which we experience the filling of the Spirit is when we sing spiritual truths to one another. This is why you ought to sing loud, because you're not just singing for yourself. See, all of these elements are different chisels that the Holy Spirit uses in shaping and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm going to make a bold statement here. The professing Christian who truly has the Holy Spirit dwelling within her and is utterly committed to gathering with God's people regularly, weekly, participating in the means that the Holy Spirit uses will be a hundred times godlier than the professing Christian who truly has the Holy Spirit but lacks commitment to the gathering of God's people and the means that the Holy Spirit uses. I have never met, never met an extremely godly, mature Christian who wasn't committed to the local church and the ordinary means that God uses to grow his people. The third reason we celebrate the Eucharist is because it's a means by which we remember and witness to the sacrificial death of Christ 
As Jesus said, Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do intentionally come and partake of the bread and cup to remember, reflect upon the sacrificial death of our Savior and all the eternal benefits that he has purchased and secured on our behalf. That word remember is is so much more than simply a mere recollection. As Hammett states, it it is recalling an event with such vividness and power that it affects the present bringing all the benefits of Christ's death to bear, remembering that his body was broken for you. It's here at the Lord's table where we truly contemplate the cost of our salvation and the glorious Savior who bore that cost in our place. The fourth reason we partake of the supper is because we believe that as we partake of the bread and cup, By the Holy Spirit, we fellowship and commune with our risen Savior. And through this fellowship, we are spiritually nourished. The Eucharist is a means by which we fellowship with Christ and are nourished spiritually by him. When we come to the Eucharist by faith, God, by his Spirit, nourishes us spiritually by allowing us to commune and feed upon Jesus. So we don't don't believe the bread and cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus. But we do believe, or we ought to believe, I think, that we feed upon Christ in a spiritual sense. We commune with him. Just as we feed upon Christ when we receive his word by faith. I think the best example of this in the scripture is in 1 Corinthians 10, 14-21, The focus of this portion of Scripture actually isn't the Lord's Supper. Paul's confronting the Corinthian believers for their idolatry. They are going to pagan temples and making sacrifices to idols. And one of the ways in which Paul addresses this is he compares the going to the pagan altars to make sacrifices to these idols, and he compares it to that of participating in the Lord's Supper. And he shows that participating in basically what he describes, the table of demons, cannot happen while you claim to be participating in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the word that comes up over and over again is this word participation, really more better translated fellowship. Okay, and so I want you to see the parallels. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? That is, those who who eat the sacrifice, are they not also fellowshipping in the altar where God dwells? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And then here it is. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
I do not want you to have fellowship or communion with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, you think you can go to these pagan altars and make sacrifices because they're just a metal idol. But you need to see that when you do this, you are actually participating, fellowshipping with demons. That is, you are communing with demonic realities. And in the same way that when you come to the Lord's table and you partake of the bread and cup, you are fellowshipping, communing with the risen Christ. There is a spiritual encounter with Jesus by which we are nourished and strengthened spiritually. So just as the manna nourished Israel physically in the wilderness, so Jesus, through the Eucharist, nourishes us spiritually. Let me quote for you Calvin on this. Therefore, let it be regarded as a settled principle that the sacraments have the same office as the Word of God. Did you hear that? The sacraments have the same office as the Word of God. Why? To offer and set forth Christ to us. And in him the treasures of heavenly grace. But they avail and profit nothing unless received by faith. In the same way the word of God accomplishes nothing if not received by faith. See we're not just here to remember what Christ has done. We're here to fellowship and commune and be nourished by Christ as we take the bread and cup. I mean, we believe that we're communing with Christ through singing and prayer and hearing his word. Why would we think anything different when we come and take the bread and cup? It's like Jesus all of a sudden runs away. No, he's here. See, the very fact that Paul says some have fallen asleep and died because of the attitude in which they were approaching the Lord's Supper, in my opinion, demonstrates that there is something deeply spiritual about this act when we come in faith. The fifth reason we practice the Lord's Supper is because the Supper serves as a time when believers renew their commitment to Christ. The Eucharist serves as a time when we recommit ourselves to the Lord. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is the natural inclination of our sinful hearts, but God has provided us means in order for us to regularly renew our love and our devotion to the Lord. And it's when we partake of the Eucharist, when we examine ourselves, repent of sin, and renew our devotion to the Lord. It's a means of covenant renewal. And if you're anything like me, you need this regularly in your life. This is partly why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight tells the believers, let a person examine himself. That is, the Lord's Supper is a time to examine your life in relation to your devotion to Jesus and through it, renew your devotion to him. It's not the altar call by which we renew our commitment to the Lord. It's his meal where he invites us to his table. And any spirit-filled Christian desires to approach his table in a manner that would honor him. And this doesn't mean that we're not welcome at the table if we're struggling with sin. No, 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 no. 
The table of forgiveness is precisely for the believer that is struggling with sin and needs grace from her Savior. I uh, I asked my wife, well, she gave me permission permission to illustrate this or to use her as an illustration. Um, About a week ago now, I really hurt my wife and and she was angry and and rightly so. And um, and I apologized to her and... uh, but she wasn't ready to forgive me. And um, one of the things I love about Gracie is that she'll never say something she doesn't mean. In our first years of marriage, I didn't like that. When, when I asked for forgiveness and she didn't forgive me right away, I was like, what's wrong with you, right? Like, forgive me. And she's like, do you want me to, do you want me to mean it? I was like, no, right now I just want you to say it. <laughs> um, but I've come to love that because when she does forgive me, I know it's real. Um, and so I said to her, take as much time as you need. Well, Wednesday, um, Jess sent out the newsletter, and in the newsletter, I said that we were going to be taking of the Lord's Supper, and Gracie read it, and, uh, and last night, actually, she told me this last night at the wedding while we were having dinner, um, she said, when I read that newsletter, and I saw that we were going to take the Lord's Supper, I knew I had to let go of my anger and forgive you, and, um, sorry, um, and, uh, and, she, and then she said to me, Every time I come to the Lord's Supper, it's just this moment of deep correction. And I, in the moment, I was like, Gracie, you just gave me the best sermon illustration. <laughs> Doghouse again. <laughs> and, uh, and she just rolled her eyes. I'm like, can I please use this? And she's like, yeah, you can. <laughs> um, and so um, Friday night, while I was um, in my study at home at 10 p.m., still working on my sermon, this sermon, because there was this couple that really wanted to get married this weekend. Um, my wife came into my, my office and, and she just said, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And, um, she's like, I just want you to know I forgive you. And, um, and I think the reason why we talked about it at the dinner was because she said to me, she goes, wouldn't it have been awful doing this wedding and we were still not reconciled? I was like, yeah. yeah. And, um, but, but here's what happened. She didn't even have to be here. She knew the Lord's Supper was coming. And it confronted her. Because she knew she could not come to this table of forgiveness with unforgiveness in her heart towards her husband. It corrected. It confronts us on a weekly or bi-weekly, but Lord willing, we're going to go weekly. It confronts us on a weekly basis to address the sin in our hearts and to renew our commitment to Jesus. And I was preparing the sermon and the Lord gave us the perfect example in our own lives to demonstrate that. Lastly, the Eucharist affirms the union that exists between Christ and believers and also between individual believers. This is a family meal. And when we come come to partake of the bread and cup, we are partaking of the one body and the one cup, and we are members of that one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake together of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is meant to demonstrate our union to Christ, but also, also union with one another. It's to declare that we belong to one another because we are of the one body of Christ. 
This is why I don't partake of the Lord's Supper by myself. And to be honest with you, this is why we didn't partake of the Lord's Supper when we were online. I don't think you can take of the Lord's Supper when you're sitting on your couch. Just being honest. It's to be a family meal. And we're to participate in the meal with awareness of one another and our love for one another that we share in Christ. I think Isaac Stavely captures this understanding of the Lord's Supper so beautifully when he wrote in his diary on March 3rd, 1771, about his experience of the Lord's Supper with his church family. He said this, We came around the table of our dear dying Lord to feast on the sacrifice of his offered body, show his death afresh, to claim and recognize our interest therein, to feast on the sacrifice of his offered body as happy members of the same family of faith and love. This is why we partake of the Lord's Supper together, brothers and sisters. And I hope and pray that going forward, the Lord's Supper will truly be a regular time in the life of our gatherings where we truly commune with our Lord and with one another. That we, like Spurgeon, would be able to testify we have yet, for the most part, enjoyed the nearest communion with Christ here that we have ever known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Jesus. For the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to all the senses of what it means to be human. Our hearing, but also our seeing, our, he- our singing, our ma- using our mouths to sing. But that we can come and look at bread and look at the cup and drink it and be reminded through this beautiful symbol of what it means that Christ has died for our sins and shed his blood on the cross for us and that we can commune with him. And I truly do pray that that would be true of us and that we would never take for granted the elements that you have given us in worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.